was full of rebels who challenged authority and tradition. And certainly, Caravaggio was someone who relished positioning himself as a rebel, who relished challenging authority and perhaps claimed to challenge authority even more than he actually did. But I'm going to give you a couple of uh, examples of that as we go along. She also talks about William Harvey, who looked at the circulation of the blood, and his work was based not on authority but on observation. It was something completely new. And one of the things that Michelangelo, I'm sorry, he is Michelangelo. He's Michelangelo da Caravaggio, Maurizio da Caravaggio. Um, and he, believe me, he liked to think of himself in light of the earlier Michelangelo. Uh, one of the things that Caravaggio got in so much trouble, especially with artists for, but I would say also in some ways with the church, was basing his work on observation, not on authority. Okay, And we're going to see a little bit about that. And then the final thing is, it was interesting to hear Linda talk about the way in which some of the most radical groups claimed actually to be referring to early Christianity, for instance, referring to scripture. And I would not blame Caravaggio of ever saying that he was referring to scripture, and I'm not sure that he ever made the argument that he was looking back at early Christianity. But as I show you a few of his works that were troublesome for his time, I want to suggest that that may be exactly what he was doing in his, in his sort of social message. So um, I want to show you a few of the sort of images that were traditional and were authority in Rome just before and after Caravaggio got there. This is the work of Federico Barocci, um, who painted in very, and often pastel colors, uh, sometimes a bit acidy in tone following Michelangelo, but uh, generally very uh, sedate, very flowing, very pretty sorts of works. Um, ones in which the virgin is idealized, the child is idealized, the donkey could never bite. Um, very, very uh, uh, soft and uh, appealing view of these uh, events that took place in the Bible. Another of the very well-known artists of the time was Il Calvieri d'Arpino, uh, who worked in a somewhat more mannered fashion with uh, often rather complex canvases. Again, you see the bright colors, you see a lot of figures. This, of course, is an adoration of the Magi, and so the people are going to look grand. But um, a lot of the religious figures of the time were made to look uh, very decorous, very uh, proud, and it was a matter of t doing them honor to show them this way. And the last of these pictures I want to show you is another of uh, Cavalieri d'Arpino's. This is his Judith with the Head of Holofernes of 1605-10. And I don't want to suggest that he was not a wonderful artist. And in fact, I just want to point out that um, this is aesthetically a phenomenal work of art in which we see this, this milky-skinned um, Judith basically seeming to have little registration on her face of the act she's just committed in cutting off the head of Holofernes. And she's holding his head, which is in itself very decorous, with its beard seeming almost brushed. And there is no blood coming out of his neck. Instead, we have this beautiful red swath of cloth standing in for the blood, 
so that you don't have to see the gore up close. Okay? And also look at the elegance of the lines that flow and bring your eye around in this picture. It's absolutely the most lovely serpentine line and a wonderful, wonderful aesthetic and ennobling sort of look. Well, when Caravaggio was there, it changes pretty radically. Okay? And uh, this is his Judith and Holofernes of exactly 1599, when this course begins. And I think you can see that Judith now, first of all, does not have the milky skin. She's much ruddier. She has a look of consternation on her face, a mixture of distaste at the event that's taking place, and also just the effort, the sort of, the sort of frowning and effort of having to hack through somebody's neck, okay? Um, there's an old crone, an ugly old crone, standing at her side, ready to help. Holofernes is crying out in surprise and anger, and the blood is shooting out of his neck. Okay? Now, one point I want to take issue with, even in myself at this moment, is to look at this blood, because in a way, Caravaggio is doing something even beyond showing the gore. He's also basically painting the blood as skeins of paint. Okay? So he's calling attention to his role as the artist. But still, you can see that it's a much more dramatic and gory presentation than the one before. Now, also, um, Linda mentioned Alberti. And, uh, and Mar had mentioned Alberti before. And so I wanted to mention, um, well, I, first of all, I want to say that Caravaggio embraced his position as this rebel. And in fact, of the six major commissions he had in Rome, major public commissions he had in Rome, from 1599 to 1606, when he had to flee because he had murdered somebody. Um, five paintings in those six commissions were first rejected and had to be replaced. Okay? So at the same time that certain people were loving his artwork, he was, he was really rattling the cage in his artwork. And the, uh, he did this both by defying artistic tradition and by defying religious decorum. At the time, the proper way to paint was to look at authority, which meant either sculpture or the great old masters, or to look at nature and pick selectively nature's most beautiful and best parts. And this is what Alberti had to say in his book on painting. Zeuxis, the most eminent, learned, and skilled painter of all, believed that all things he desired to achieve that all the things he had dared to achieve, beauty not only could be found by his own intuition, but were only to be discovered in nature, not just in one body alone, but he had to choose from all the youth of the city five outstandingly beautiful girls so that he might represent in his painting whatever feature of feminine beauty was most praiseworthy in each of them. I would have decency and modesty observed in every historia in such a way that ugly things are either omitted or amended. Okay, well, this was not Caravaggio's philosophy. And in fact, um, his biographer would go on to say of Caravaggio, he began to paint according to his own inclinations, not only ignoring but even dis uh, despising the superb statuary of antiquity and the famous paintings of Raphael. He considered nature to be the only subject fit for his brush. This is where this observation and then Harvey comes in. As a result, when he was shown the most famous statues of Phidias in order that he might use them as models, 
his only answer was to point toward a crowd of people saying that nature had given him an abundance of masters. Okay. So let's look at how he did this in a few more images. When we look at the earlier Annunciation, I mean, Adoration, this of course is the Adoration of the Magi, but here we're looking at uh, Caravaggio's Adoration from 1608 to 9, and this is an Adoration of the Shepherds, so it is going to have a more modest feel. But I think you can see that he has taken it down to its essential features, and this is a way in which I think his work and a lot of the painters of the time may diverge from some of the things that Marika is going to be talking about in terms of ornamentation. Because in a way, Caravaggio raged against ornamentation. His, his war was with the ideal and with the over-ornamented, okay? And he brought things down to their simplest, simplest denominator. Uh, when he painted his flight into Egypt, we have a very different sort of scene. We have a haggard-looking Joseph with a lot of lines in his face. We have an exhausted young mother, Mary, who simply cannot keep her head up holding her child. We have a beautiful angel appearing to them and playing music for Joseph to give him sustenance. Uh, but there's a contrast between the wonderful, uncalloused feet of the young boy, of the young angel, and the twisted, tired feet of Joseph rubbing each other because they have been walking, he's been walking and walking and walking, leading the donkey with Mary and the child on it. And um, one of the earlier works that he got into trouble for, and I'm going to show you the picture that got him into trouble, was um, in his, um, his complex of images relating to St. Matthew, okay? in the French People's Church in Rome, okay? San Luigi dei Francesi. San Luigi dei Francesi. And um, I think the most famous of these, many of you already know, and that's the calling of Matthew from 1599 to 1600. Um, and even here, Caravaggio is really rebelling. Even here, he is taking the main figure and placing him in shadow. Here is Christ. And he is describing the group from which St. Matthew was drawn, not as a, a pious group of uh, individuals, modest though they may be, but as a bunch of street toughs and roughs, okay, including a tax collector, which was one of the most despised professions and one of the most strong-arming professions in Rome at the time. Okay? Um, but the the picture he got in trouble for is this, which was the angel appearing to St. Matthew. Now, the four evangelists have their attributes, their, uh, their figures, their mythological figures that go along with them, and St. Luke is an ox, and Mark is a lion. Well, Matthew's was an angel who was supposed to guide him in writing the scriptures. What made people so mad about this picture? And I'm sorry, it's, a, it's an incredible work, and I can't show it to you in color because it was destroyed in World War II. So only black and white photos exist of it. But um, we see a Matthew who is in no way idealized. He has gnarly aging skin and muscles. He has bent old bunion feet. His dirty feet are up to the... I, anybody remember Adlai Stevenson putting his feet up in front of... That's for the, for the 
slightly more advanced generation. Uh, but it's a similar, uh, similar sort, of, uh, sort of idea. And what is even more, not only is, he, is his face crinkled up and he's looking at the page, but he's looking at the pages and he can't even read it. In other words, the angel is having to teach him how to read and write. Okay, The man who wrote the gospel. So there was a sense in which this really belittled this saint. And in fact, um, one of his biographers says that after he had finished the central picture of St. Matthew and installed it on the altar in 1602, the priest took it down, saying that the figure with its legs crossed and its feet rudely exposed to the public had neither decorum nor the appearance of a saint. Okay? However, a very well-observed human being. This is the picture that replaced it, that's there now. Of course, it's fantastic, also by, by uh, Caravaggio. Um, but I might suggest that in replacing it, he's decided to pay a little more lip service to Cagliari d'Arpino and put in some of these great cascading lines and flourishes in this work, a bit of a concession on his part. Um, this was another of his works that was uh, soundly rejected. It was put in place uh, uh, sometime in the first couple weeks of April in, um, in 1600 to 1601, and it was, um, I'm sorry, it was 165 or 166, and within two weeks it had been removed. And it had been removed because this was supposed to be on, this is uh, the Virgin, the Christ Child, and St. Anne. It was supposed to be on an altar dedicated to St. Anne. What has he done with St. Anne? St. Anne, who is always presented as this wonderful, loving mother of her child, who herself conceived Mary immaculate, immaculately, supposedly, never looking so aged. And here she's marginalized. She's an old crone. The virgin is shown with her skirt hiked up to get to work. Okay, A little bit of, little bit of cleavage showing. And the child, the little baby who is always accepted as naked when he's about two months old in images, now seems to be about a four-year-old, and he's still running around without any clothes on. This was not thought to be very decorous at the time. Just a couple more images I want to show you. Uh, this is his um, death, Dormition of the Virgin, from 1601 to 3. And this was another picture that was roundly rejected because Mary was supposed to be shown as a woman who was drifting peacefully off into, into sleep as death. But in fact, Caravaggio has shown her as a rather bloated, bare-legged body that you might find in a morgue in a bed. And this was terrifically offensive. Um, what I'd like to suggest, however, and this is going back to the idea of the sort of social aspect and the return to early Christianity of Caravaggio. The, you have to look at the context for which this picture was painted. It was painted for a patron who was very, very active in an organization that specialized in taking care of abused and abandoned wives. Okay? And I think that it is very possible that one of the reasons Caravaggio is depicting the Mary this, the, uh, the, uh, this Mary this way is to bring her into to, to give sympathy toward the sorts of women that actually were being treated badly on the streets and dying in Rome. And as a last example, 
I want to show you um, this work, which is in one of my favorite churches in Rome, San Agostino. Uh, this is called the Madonna of Loreto, and uh, he painted it 1603 to 6. It's still there, uh, and it um, shows this very beautiful but very Italian-looking Mary with her rather large child attending to a couple of pilgrims, okay? Now, the traditional way of showing this scene was to emphasize not Mary, but her house, because the story of the Madonna of Laredo was that the Madonna's house, when the Muslims took over the Holy Land, was miraculously translated to Italy. And so you see these pictures. This one was painted uh, in, uh, by Domenichino in about 1605. This one's a little earlier. Of angels picking up a little house. Mary's usually sitting somewhere in it and just dropping it down in, in, in this spot. But I would say that Caravaggio has gone back to the idea of this being a pilgrimage site for Christians, which is the whole reason that the house needed to move from the Holy Land back to Italy, and is showing the actual sorts of people who show up at the door to these sorts of pilgrimages. And this was thought to be indecorous because these figures were supposed to be pious, but they were dirty and their clothes were dirty and their hair was messed up and their caps were torn. But after all, isn't that exactly the sorts of people that Christ supposedly was ministering to in the Bible? And this is where I think, in a way, Caravaggio was going back to tradition and looking at it very closely. I want to suggest that his showing these pictures, who were the sort of people who might be begging on the streets of Rome in 1600, are in effect the sorts of people who are begging on the streets of Rome today. And this is a beggar on the church steps of a Roman church, and every church in Rome virtually has this person in front. And I just wanted to to end by saying that I think that there is a very important message in Caravaggio's work that not always the authorities or the people of the place he was working in wanted to hear. Okay, that's it. Thank you.